If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 16. The only prayer of Psalm 16 comes in the first, the only prayer of Psalm 16 comes in the first line. The rest of the psalm consists of David's weaving together his personal testimonies of trust in the Lord. In view of this, David's opening prayer is bolstered by two cycles of testimony. Number one, his testimony of his communion with the Lord verses 2 through 4, and secondly, his testimony of confidence in the Lord, verses 5 through 11. You also notice in the superscript of this text, we see the word miktum. Miktum is a term found here and also in Psalm 56 through 60, and it's possibly a musical or liturgical term. So we'll begin reading at Psalm 16. This is God's word. We'll begin with a superscript. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will, be, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John. Chapter 20, we'll begin reading at verse 19 through 31. John 20, 19 through 31. The doors were locked, verse 19, for fear of the Jews. Since the authorities had executed their leader, they reasonably expected that Jesus' fate would be their own. Since the disciples did not actually receive the Holy Spirit until the day of Pentecost, some 40 days in the future, Acts 1.8. This statement in verse 22 must be understood as a pledge on Christ's part that the Holy Spirit would be coming. In verse 23 of the text, Jesus is not saying that we can forgive sins 
but he is saying that the believer can boldly declare the certainty of a sinner's forgiveness by the Father because of the work of his Son. If that sinner has repented and believed in the gospel. The believer with certainty can also tell those who do not respond to the message of God, God's forgiveness, through faith in Christ, that their sins, as a result, are not forgiven. In verses 24 and 25, Thomas has already been portrayed as, a lo as, as loyal but pessimistic. Jesus did not rebuke Thomas for his failure, but instead compassionately offered him proof of his resurrection. Jesus lovingly met him at the point of his weakness. Thomas's actions indicated that Jesus had to convince the disciples rather forcefully of his resurrection. The disciples were not gullible people predisposed to believing in the resurrection. The point is that they would not have fabricated it or hallucinated it since they were so reluctant to believe even with the evidence they could see. With these words, my Lord and my God, in verse 28, Thomas declared his firm belief in the resurrection and the deity of Jesus, the Messiah and the Son of God. Verses 30 through 31 functions as the fitting capstone of John's goal and purpose for which he wrote the Gospel of John. We'll begin reading the Gospel of John, chapter 20, at verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If, the, if you withhold, with, withhold forgiveness from them from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are, the written, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Brother, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. We've been involved for some months now in the study of this magnificent text. We are now in the, really in the heart of the matter. We're in the 15th chapter, a chapter known as the, as the resurrection chapter. Last week we really introduced it by covering the first 11 verses. I want to very briefly recount that as foundational to today's message. Paul begins by reminding them of the significance of the gospel. Looking at verse 1, chapter 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. It's the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. Unless your profession of faith was empty, is what he's saying. Then moving from the significance of the gospel, he gets very specific about what the gospel is in verse 3. For I delivered to you of first importance, primary, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. He didn't just die for sins, though he did die for sins. He died for our sins. And that death was in accordance with the scriptures. Recall last week I said he died a penal death. A death that was the wages for sin. The wages of sin is death. He died a substitutionary death. He didn't have any sin of his own. He died for our deaths. And he died a propitiatory death. He satisfied the justified wrath of God. And as proof that he actually died, according to the scriptures, he was buried, verse 4 tells us. And he was raised on the third day, also according to the scriptures. And as proof of that resurrection, he appeared. He appeared to Cephas, that's Simon Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Most of those were still alive at the time Paul wrote this passage. Though some had fallen asleep, they had died. Then he appeared to James, one of his natural, though certainly younger, brothers. Then he appeared to all the disciples. That's probably when he ascended right in front of them. Last of all, Paul writes, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And then he admits, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church of God. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it wasn't I, but the grace of God that is in me. When John Newton, the former slaver, the author of Amazing Grace, preached on that passage, he summarized the Christian life thusly. I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I might be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. 
but I'm not what I once was, a child of sin, a slave of the devil. I think I can truly say with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he concludes in verse 11 by saying, so whether it was I, Paul, or they, meaning all the other apostles, this is what we preach. And this is what you Corinthians and those of us that are believers believed. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, the giver and sustainer of life, the great superintendent of all things. Lord, we come before you, we come before this text of Scripture believing this is the very word of God. Holy men of old, moved by the Spirit, wrote these things. They've been supernaturally preserved for us. They've, we can read them. We're, thankfully, we can read these words in our own languages because you preserved them and gave us such abilities. Lord, we pray now not just to understand the words, but to understand them spiritually. We pray, Lord, that your spirit will enlighten our understanding, that we may see their relevance for where we are in our lives, where we are going with our lives, where, where we will spend eternity. We pray, Lord, you will minister to us, that you will minister in our weakness, that you will minister in our fears and our anxieties, that you will give us a living hope based upon the promises of your word, which reflect your perfect character in all things, and that these things will be done entirely for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Now, as I was putting things together for this message, I began to, well, why would anybody doubt a bodily resurrection? What kind of person would believe such a thing? That, that it wasn't truly a bodily resurrection. I think most people, if you ask them, oh, sure, he arose bodily. Actually, an awful lot of really, quote, smart people say, well, no, it really isn't that way. In fact, I found a, a PhD who has a wonderful website called earlychristiantext.com. And she apparently has been, been studying the, the, these things and putting them out. And she's, she's come to the conclusion that if you just read a lot of ancient texts that aren't in your Bible you'll be a lot smarter about what is in your Bible. Her conclusion is that conservatives and fundamentalist Christians over the past two centuries have developed a, a very non-biblical image of what resurrection is. So they completely ignore the way Paul wrote about it. They completely ignore the way early Christian people understood resurrection. Because they certainly understood it to be a social, a collective, a spiritual resurrection rather than a bodily resurrection. They believed in a profoundly worldly resurrection. It's societal evolution, I suppose you would say. Say, well, she's probably an outlier. Well, she's not an outlier. The, the dean of the religious department, the most distinguished religious scholar at the University of North Carolina, is a... PhD named Paul Ehrman. He's a world-renowned authority on Jesus. He says, in my opinion, this all-or-nothing demand for a bodily resurrection of Christ or bust that Christianity seems to require of Jesus' followers is an antiquated approach 
It's as, it's as antiquated as the scroll we first learned about the resurrection, quote, event itself. There's so many different ways to be inspired by the mystery of the resurrection. You shouldn't have to sacrifice your intellect as a faithful or faith-filled disciple. See, now that's a, a mocking reference to simply believing the word of God. Most of you who watch much TV have seen a He Gets Us campaign. It, it's a, these are little, little short videos. They show up a lot in sports. So if you watch the football games, you'll see them from time to time. It's, it's a series of little black and white 30, 45 second vignettes saying things like Jesus was a refugee, Jesus, his family wasn't perfect, he invited everyone to sit at his table, uh, he didn't feel welcomed by the religious leaders either. It's, it's the He Gets Us campaign. And I suspect they have good motives here, but they are teaching a social gospel here, that Jesus is not dangerous. You can, you can, and he isn't dangerous, he offers life itself. But he does offer it on his terms. Two-thirds of Americans say they believe in the resurrection of the dead. But they don't necessarily mean a bodily resurrection. When you get very specific, particularly among young people, age 18 to 34, 59% of them say bodily resurrections don't happen. What happens is resurrections like, well, the ghost of Christmas past and the ghost of Christmas future. That sort of thing. You know, spirits. They do believe in spirits. Prince Harry believes that Diana, his mom, talked to him in her spirit through a panther he saw somewhere. He's not exactly a noted theologian, but he does reflect the spirit of the age. The bottom line is this. To at least the majority of liberal Christians... The resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is a matter of faith. It's not a matter of reason. So you can pretty well ignore it if you want to. The afterlife in general tends to be thought of as the survival of our spirit somewhere, somehow, after death. And maybe only for a brief period of time. Most likely as long as people remember us. And then, like a vapor, it just dissipates into the atmosphere. Now, is that a real comforting message to you? Is, is that what you come to church to hear? Is that the sort of thing you, you're, you're going to die for that? I, I would think not. Brother, I want to explicitly and unconditionally state that belief in the bodily, bodily resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is an essential element of the faith and is therefore necessary for our salvation. He not only died according to the scriptures, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul very clearly states, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10, and incidentally on the back of the bulletin is a complete outline of all this. You don't have to go running, looking for these verses. They're all going to be there. And, but I do encourage you to check the verses when you do have time. Make sure I'm not misusing them anywhere. 
Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because with the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, confession is made and one is saved. So, did the Son of God, did Jesus Christ have a body before the incarnation? No. That's the whole point of the incarnation. John 1.14 says, He became flesh and dwelt among us. Not, he used to be flesh, then he gave it up, then he became it again. No, it's very specific. He became flesh, the Son of God, who was with God before anything was made, and nothing was made without him. He was called the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't have a body before then. How many bodies did he have? One. One body. Where did it come from? Well... Hebrews 10.5 is really good about this. The Lord, the Lord is expressing a truth probably through David, but it's a psalm picked up in Hebrews 10, that sacrifices and offerings the Lord has not desired, but a body the Lord has prepared for him. Did that body die? Yes. How do we know it died? Because it was buried. And see, the scripture's very clear about that. What happened on the third day? He was raised from the dead, according to the scriptures. How do we know that? Well, Brother Walt just read to us about one of the appearances he had with people that know him. He shows up in this locked room just like that. I can't explain that. But then he tells them, look at my hands and look at my side. Why don't you put your finger in the holes? Don't disbelieve, but believe. We could have turned instead to Luke 24, 36 and following. They're talking about rumors that Jesus has been re resurrected in that locked room. Suddenly Jesus is standing right there among them. And he says, peace to you. Their first thought, Luke 24, 37, says they're startled and they're frightened, or they're shocked and they're scared. What do they think they're seeing? They think they are seeing a spirit. They don't think it's a bodily resurrection. They think they're seeing a spirit. They think they're seeing, you know, something that used to be a body. Jesus says, why are you troubled? Why do you have these doubts arising in your hearts? Don't you see my hands and my feet? It is me. Touch me, he says. Now, a spirit would not say, touch me. A spirit says, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That should be the answer to whether or not it's a bodily resurrection right there. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And then, of course, they're pretty excited. They're filled with joy. They're marveling. He says, oh, by the way, have you got anything to eat? And they say, well, we've, we've got a piece of broiled fish. And he took that fish and he ate it right in front of them. Now, that's an awful lot of evidence of a bodily resurrection in just a few verses there. 
It certainly sounds like a bodily resurrection to me. I would hope it would to you as well. But of course, those aren't the only times he appeared. In his body, after his death, burial, and resurrection. There's at least ten times recorded in the scriptures. But he walks on the earth for 40 days before his ascension. There may have been hundreds of other occasions. Do either of the examples that Walt read or that I just looked at in Luke give any indication it could be anything but a bodily resurrection? Of course not. So why would anybody say... He wasn't bodily raised from the dead. Or to be specific, why would anybody in Corinth do that? Because that's, that's where this letter is being written. It's been written to, to first century Corinthians. Well, look with me at the text. Now I'm in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed, if Christ is preached as having been raised from the dead, how can some of you, and he, let's, let's be very specific, Paul saying, how can some of you Corinthians say there is no resurrection from the dead? Now that must mean that some Corinthians were actually saying that. And Paul's writing here to straighten them out. Apparently, there were some people in Corinth here, like there are a lot of people today, who were saying, well, there might have been a resurrection, but it wasn't bodily. He was probably raised spiritually in some way, and then maybe just appeared as a body, but it wasn't real. The reality is, he's always with us. Well, let me assure you, that is the reality. He is always with us. When we gather in his name, we have his word. He meets with us. But they have this idea like E.T., our little guy, who's now 45 years old, uh, he had one of those little E.T. dolls. I don't think we sprung for the big buck so that if you pushed his forehead, it would start glowing. But the great scene at the end of E.T. is that I'll always be with you. And his finger gets to glow, and then he touches him right here so that, so that he'll know E.T.'s always watching. I think that's what some of the Corinthians might have thought. I think that's kind of what some liberal theologians and some of the social justice types in our day think too. Jesus is always with us. It's a, it's a spiritual resurrection that he's, we can find great comfort in. Paul, in the next seven verses, is going to offer eight distinct reasons why the bodily resurrection is absolutely essential. It's critical to the faith once delivered to the saints. And Paul's argument here in these next seven verses are a, are a model for how to contend for the faith on that particular subject. So to begin with, and this actually is the longest one, so if this seems to go long, don't think the other seven are going to be, be quite this long. He says, if there is no resurrection in verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, apparently, some of the Corinthians may have believed Jesus was bodily resurrected, but they didn't extend that to themselves because, after all, Jesus was special. And he certainly was special. He was unique. So probably somehow in their mind they were thinking, well, 
Maybe he was, but, but I don't think we could be just because he was. And Paul's saying, no. No, it doesn't work that way. You don't get one without the other. If Christ wasn't bodily resurrected, we aren't going to be bodily resurrected. Now, the Corinthians were saved out of their culture. And sadly, we live in our culture. Uh, they had no place for resurrection in their culture. And we sincerely doubt it among intellectually sharp people and culturally relevant people in our own day. The Greeks buried their dead with coins over their eyes so that they would have that coin to pay the boatman who's going to pole boat them across the little river to the place they're never coming back from, Hades. Aristotle believed, well, maybe the mind went on, but the body was gone. When Paul preached in Athens on Mars Hill, he preached to the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Stoics taught that, the, that when, you, we, when we died, our soul was absorbed in this pantheistic world spirit. Kind of the Shirley MacLaine version of what happens when we die. The Epicureans taught that the body just disintegrated into the earth. I've got a, uh, an article out of World Magazine that I shared with Charlene yesterday that apparently New York has become now the sixth, sixth or seventh state in which you can choose to be composted. Uh, there's a group called Recompost or something, and they will offer $7,000, about the price of a funeral, I gather. They will, they will put you in above ground in some sort of little facility where they add a little sawdust and a little uh, herbs and spices and things like that and rotate you regularly until you compost down so that now you can be taken home and a garden can be planted in you. All right. That's probably carrying the Epicureans a little further than they even intended. Uh, their idea would be best described as eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. One of the most noted authorities in the ancient world and ancient world religions has concluded that Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was already known to be false. See, the central claim of Christianity is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that all of those that are in Christ, because he was raised from the dead, will be raised from the dead. Paul writes to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that we, when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. And we are assured in Revelation 20, 13, that everyone will be resurrected, including the sea giving up its dead. Now, long ago, Charlene and I had paid a visit to the Arizona Memorial in Pearl Harbor. And when you, when you get off the little boat, which when we did it was just filled with Japanese tourists, uh, and you're walking around on the memorial, you actually look over the side and realize you're looking right down the smokestack, and there's just a massive ship there with thousands of remains, or a couple of thousand remains, hundreds in any case. Of course, they're not the way they used to be, because things have gone on there, like things that go on everywhere. The sea is filled with things that have died, and they're not just laying around there, the fish are eating them. They're, they're falling apart, they're gone, they're scattered everywhere. 
The word of God says the sea will give up its dead in the end. Everybody rises. It's not a problem for God where you are, where your body is. You may be absent from the body and with the Lord, but your body remains you. Whether it's in one place, whether it's composted in a lot of places, whether it's in the sea. Of course, most people today don't believe that. Certainly most people in the first century didn't believe that. And Paul accepts that. Okay, I understand the culture doesn't accept that. But how can you Corinthians, he's asking, who've received the gospel, believe the gospel, are standing in the gospel, how can you not believe in the resurrection from the dead? And he anticipates their answer being something like, because Jesus was unique. He has a, he has a unique body. Well, there's a sense in which that is, this is true. He was certainly uniquely conceived. But that's the miracle. We covered this any number of months ago, I think over the Christmas season. The miracle was his conception, not his virgin birth. Those nine months in the womb, he went from a zygote to an infant. He had a natural birth. The scriptures tell us in Luke 2.22, he had a normal youth. He went through puberty. He went to maturity. He increased, meaning he grew in stature, that is height, and in wisdom, in the things that he knew as a human. He hungered. He thirsted. He sat down beside Jacob's well about the sixth hour because while his disciples had gone off into Sychar to find some food, John 4, 6 says he was wearied from the journey. I can assure you if you'd walked through Samaria, you'd be wearied by the journey too. Because you have a body like he had a body. And he had a body like you have a body. He was a unique person. But he had a body just like ours. That body, according to Isaiah 53, was bruised. It turned blue where it had been beaten. It bled. It was pierced, and it died. He had a body just like yours. So Paul says in verse 13, if there's no such thing as a resurrection, then even Christ has not been raised. And if that's so, what does that mean? And now there's a whole series of ramifications of that. In verse 14, if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain. Meaning it's devoid of any intellectual, any moral, any spiritual value whatsoever. It's just empty. Our preaching is empty. There really is no there there. There's no reality to our preaching. And if that's what you believe, then the third point is then your faith's in vain because you believed an empty message. It's not real. Now, that's a very big deal because Romans 4.25 tells us that God delivered up his son, Jesus Christ, for our sins and raised him for our justification. If he didn't raise him, then we're not justified. We're not declared to be righteous. The last thing we want to do is stand before a holy God as an unholy individual. 
He is a consuming fire, I would remind you. But it's even worse than that. Look at verse 15. There's a fourth point here. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then we, the apostles, are even found to be misrepresenting God. We're not only lying to everybody else, we're lying to one another. The whole thing's been a con job right from the start. When Peter stands up in Acts 2, 24 and says, God raised this Jesus whom you put to death from the dead because it was impossible for the grave to hold him. When he says it a little later, God has made him both Christ and Lord, this Jesus who you crucified. The other apostles are standing around him. They're nodding, but they all know it's an act. They all know it's fake. That's what it means if there's no bodily resurrection. What about Saul of Tarsus, whose whole life was changed about his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to, on the road to Damascus? It means that was all a lie, too. That means the Gospels these men wrote are all lies. It means the seven times that Jesus said he would, be, he would rise again, destroy this body, re, destroy this temple, referring to his own body, and I'll raise it on the third day. It means he was lying. In other words, if there's no bodily resurrection, then you're saying, if you save that, God's a liar. Because those apostles testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he didn't raise him if there is no resurrection. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. Now verse 17, it gets even more intense. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. Now that not only means empty, that means it's purposeless. Why go to church? Why read your Bible? Why pray? Why even try to be a Christian? Because the bottom line is, the verse continues, you're still in your sins. Now that would have been extremely troubling to Corinthians who, were, who had been following Paul. You know, this, this, this letter is all being read at one time. He's now in the 15th chapter there as they're reading this to the congregation and they probably had to read it a few times through. But most of them can go back nine chapters to chapter six and remember when he said, don't you know that the unrighteous, those people who haven't been declared righteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? He said, don't be deceived. Sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy people, covetous people that would be, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, none of those are going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's very, very specific. And then he says to these Corinthians, you know, some of you were all those things. And I can assure you, in the time that I've been pastor of this little church, every single one of those things has been represented. Such were some of you. Now, if Christ is not raised, you still are, whether you practice it or not. Think about that. But it isn't just about you. It isn't just about those Corinthians. Verse 18 tells us, those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished, not just died, not just died anticipating heaven and an eternity 
in the presence of the Lord where there's joy forevermore? 2,000 years of believers who, we would say, are asleep in Jesus, perished. Those nonconformists in Bunhill Cemetery in England that we showed all the strange little tombstones. I mean, just thousands and thousands of them out here in a little park in the middle of the city here, all in the 1600s, 130,000 of them perhaps. They perished. David Livingston, the great Scottish missionary to Africa, who, you know, he's got, a, he's got a, the tooth marks of a lion on one shoulder. And he's almost blind, but he's on his knees praying in Africa when he dies. He's gone, perished. John Newton, that clerk that wrote Amazing Grace, he had put on his tombstone, by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I was preserved, restored, and pardoned. Gone. Perished. William Carey, the cobbler, missionary to India, had a portion of Isaac Watts' hymn. It's the only words besides his name and dates. On his tombstone, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall, perished. Are you willing to concede that because people think you're simple, they're right, and they may not be a bodily resurrection? Because see, everything hangs on that. If everything could have been done spiritually, why would Jesus Christ take on human flesh? Why did he have to come and die? Why couldn't the great God just do hocus pocus and it was all right again? Because the great God is a righteous holy being whose justice must be satisfied. Who has set his love upon a people in the midst of his creation. Everything which was created for his glory. And, and they have fallen into sin. And the sin earns his wrath. And he can't forgive the sin because the cost of the sin is death. That's the wages of sin. They have to be judged. None of them will, none of them will pass. So he sends his son. He sends his son in human flesh to identify with our frailties, to identify with our weaknesses, to identify for the temptations of this world. He was likewise tempted in all things as we are. And 30 plus years, he never sinned. And then he willingly laid down his life to pay our sin debt. He didn't have one to pay. He was innocent. The religious system, the political system, the governmental system all found him innocent and killed him. And God allowed that. Because somehow in the darkness of those three hours on Calvary's cross, God the Father made God the Son to be sin for us. So that his righteousness should somehow be imputed to our account. So that when we put our faith and confidence in his finished work, the great transaction beyond our comprehension, 
we're not only saved, we are granted eternal, everlasting life. It's all of grace. That really leads us to the last point in verse 19. If in Christ we if in Christ we have hope in this life only. If if being a Christian is just good for this life, because generally if other people are Christians, you get along better if you're a Christian too. Or there's really some advantages to being kind and gracious and nice to your neighbors. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Paul says we're of all people the most to be pitied. I mean, we are of all people deserving sympathy because it's so pathetic. Why would he say something like that? Because I has not seen nor the mind of man conceived the glories that await believers. And the disappointment, if God's a liar, makes it pathetic that we would believe him. And you can't believe him unless he draws you to that belief, unless he gives you that faith. But you know how hard it is to believe him? You have to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. His hand of grace is extended to you. It's extended to everyone. Come to Jesus. Come to the Lord. Bring your cares, your burdens, your fears, your anxieties to him. And he will deliver you. If there is no bodily resurrection, it's all a joke. And believers are most to be pitied. But as we will see next Lord's Day, today we ask the question, if there is no resurrection, what? Next Lord's Day, but Christ was raised from the dead. And all these things are not only true and possible, they are assured by the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, how great and glorious is the gospel of grace. How amazing it is that in the mind of God these things are accomplished. You set your love upon your people. You call your people to yourself. You declare them to be righteous. You begin a work of sanctification and conforming them to the image of your son and ultimately like Brian is at this very moment, they are glorified in your presence. Lord, these things are beyond our full comprehension, but you give us the faith to simply believe your word, and in that word, we rest. Use this message for your glory and the extension of your kingdom. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.